It's good to be here this morning, and uh, I have been greatly edified during this study, all the presentations that have been presented and, and uh, prepared and delivered have been beneficial to me in my walk of faith. I hope that this is to you as well, and uh, I look forward to our discussion to follow. The love of God is portrayed in beautiful and powerful ways in the message of Malachi. This is the opening phrase of the book, I have loved you. But Malachi was in an age of religious disillusionment and uh, discontent. I want to jump right into the discussion with, a, with a, a discussion of the date and the authorship of the book. And not too surprisingly, there's quite a bit of debate about these things. So I'll try to present what I have concluded to be the best answer in some um, defense of those of those positions. And this, in talking about the date of the book, it seems clear to me that Malachi worked and lived during the time of the Persians. Ezra and Nehemiah were probably uh, fully involved in their work concurrently with Malachi. Artaxerxes was the ruler of Persia at the time and he had commissioned uh, Ezra as the secretary of the state for the region beyond the river that's on the west of Euphra Euphrates. Ezra and a small group of settlers arrived in 457 BC and approximately 13 years later Nehemiah became governor of Judea. After serving for 12 years as governor, Nehemiah returned to Shushan, the Persian court. Most people think that the purpose for his return was to renew his commission as governor and while he was gone many of the sinful practices which he and Ezra had corrected reappeared and most scholars seem to think that it was in Nehemiah's absence that Malachi wrote what we have as Malachi's prophecy. I strongly favored the period between Nehemiah's two visits uh, about the time of um, 433 or so BC. So when we talk about the uh, one of the main clues that that indicate this uh, is the use of the word governor in Malachi chapter 1 verse 8. When you offer the blind a sacrifice, Malachi says, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. The word governor here is a Hebrew word that indicates that uh, Judah was specifically administered by this type of governor. And historically, uh, this happened... Uh, did not happen before the exile and did not happen until they were the Jews were restored. Another clue is that Malachi assumes the existence of the temple and seems to presuppose a time of spiritual decline. And another, of course, is the specific sins that are mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah are also talked addressed in Malachi. Malachi is a book of messengers. We talked a little bit about messenger earlier this morning. Five are identified identified in Malachi, we are in agreement with four. First of all, the prophet Malachi is, of course, a messenger. His name means my messenger or messenger of the Lord. The priest, as is talked about in chapter 2, were supposed to be messengers, but they were chided because they were failed to be faithful in their duties. 
John the Baptist is spoken of prophetically as a messenger, and Jesus Christ is spoken of prophetically as a messenger. Now, the last one that I have on the board, uh, there's some indication among certain uh, ideologies that uh, another preacher is going to come like John the Baptist, and he'll be this last messenger. And we, we pretty much typically uh, reject this idea. Now, the canonicity of Malachi, contrary to many books of the Old Testament, has never really been disputed. Although the New Testament does not mention either the book or the prophet by name, it's quoted from many times throughout the New Testament, throughout Jesus and Paul's writings. Malachi is a short book. We can easily discuss the problematic passages in the book. And I'm going to break Malachi down into different sections or segments. I'll call them chiasms uh, and point out problems in each one. Malachi only has 55 verses, 47 of which are as though God is speaking directly to Judah through the prophet Malachi. And this use of the first person presents a vivid encounter between God and the people. God accuses Judah of failing him leaving him and sinning against him. <clears throat> and, the, and, the, and the people of Judah offer what really amounts to a very feeble defense, and God counters that by giving motivation to change their ways. This pattern occurs seven times throughout the book of Malachi. Assertion, objection, and refutation of the objection. Some have argued that in the book of Malachi, there is a form of a, that the book is a form of a covenant lawsuit and this is based on the idea of the four times that the covenant is mentioned. Covenant with Levi, covenant of our fathers, uh, the marriage covenant, and then the messenger of the covenant all the way in chapter 4. There are other discussions in the book of Malachi that are more complicated. In the second discussion, God states that a, God is, that a father is honored by his son and a master his servant. Then he... God applies this truth to his relationship with Judah and asks, where's my honor? The priests deny, of course, that they've dishonored God. And God states that they've defiled his table, the table of the Lord. And then the priests deny this, saying, how have we defiled the table? And the full explanation then is given in verses 8 through 10 in chapter 1. As we've stated already, the central theme of Malachi is the love of God. This is what should be noted and taught about the closing book of the Old Testament canon. I am constantly barraged, though, with the idea that God ends the Old Testament with a curse. And I struggle, I have to really read into the passage to see that, because it seems to me that what I read in Malachi is that God loves his people, and that he is wounded, heartbroken, because his people have sinned against him and have rejected him. Within these three segments or disputations, uh, there's an ethical triangle, when, and seven, these segments are broken down into seven smaller segments with, that begin with God's accusation, followed by their response, and God's reproof. We see those listed on the board. Now the chart, I thought it would be too small to see, um, and I apologize for not having a handout with it, but I'll be happy to share those notes. This chart uh, breaks down these, these uh, larger segments. And each, each of the parts of the chart will be represented by a triangle in following slides. Malachi names God as God of the covenant tw 21 times. 
calls him Lord Almighty 24 times. And this puts the focus directly on God and on his holiness. God is the Supreme Lord and Lord Almighty. And this combination expresses his covenant relationship with Israel. His divinity is displayed showing him as the incomparable one. And the relationship between God and Israel depicts him as father, of course, implies that Israel is his son. The title given to God as great king in chapter 1 verse 14 is a common uh, phrase used in ancient literature to indicate that the great king is the one who initiates the covenant. And God's intercourse with his people is described in these terms, uh, in these human affectionate terms. He loves, he hates, he's angry, he's weary, he has displeasure and pleasure. He threatens, he blesses, and he curses. All this within the book of Malachi. Consequently, Malachi commands the people of Judah to return to God by renewing their commitment to his instruction, especially in restoring the honor to his name and in their loyalty to their marriage covenants and the faithful handling of their material possessions. Malachi bases these commands, these exhortations on three things. The Lord's demonstration of his great love for Israel, their spiritual covenant unity with God and with each other, and the assurance of a coming day when the Lord will bring final reject, redemption and judgment, blessing those who fear him and removing the wicked. And this is the first beginning of the first section, verse 1 of chapter 1. And it sets well to, to open the book. Here Malachi addresses, begins to address the theological problem in the worldview of the people of Judah, the returned exiles. Um, the Aramaic Targum goes so far as to add that Ezra was the scribe who wrote uh, the book of Malachi. But I'm convinced that this exception does not make a strong case and that Malachi was an actual person who wrote the small book most likely quoted from many of his sermons. The next four verses, verses 2 through 5, I hope you have your Bibles open and can read along a little bit, address a core problem in the theological view that, of God that Judah held. They're written in the first person as though God is speaking directly to the people through the prophet. And the people answer, calling God's declared love into question. God replies, pointing to the fact that he chose and loved Jacob over Esau, even though Esau was technically the elder son. So we're presented with the first real problem in the book. People today have little to no uh, concept regarding God's emotion. They appear to think the phrase God is love means that God is only love that we find in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. In his anthropomorphic actions though, God displays a full gamut of emotions. We see that he has anger, jealousy, and in our current context, he hates. The question is, how can God's love be demonstrated by comparing it to his hate of Esau? Even more simplistically, can God truly hate is a question for us to think about. Generally, these questions are answered by reducing these topics to a comparative display of affection. Like when Jacob loved uh, Rachel and hated Leah. The preceding verse, Genesis 29 verse 30 though, tells us that 
Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And of course, the Lord's admonition in Luke 14, verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother or wife or children and brothers, sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is this what Malachi is saying to the returned exiles, that God loves them more than the descendants of Esau or Edom? Or is the idea correctly presented in the verbiage that God actually hates Edom? This is one of the first problems. Um, we're confronted here with the positive motivation that God declares his sovereign and unconditional love for Israel. Israel's responding question refers to their experience in that even though they've been returned, they're still suffering under Persian rule and still suffering in many other ways. They may have felt like Isaiah's description in Isaiah 59, therefore justice is far from us and so forth. Um, it's their insolence and their ingratitude that causes God to, has caused God to reject them for a time. God was patient with Judah or Israel who had at times wholly followed him. This is proof that God loved Judah. To better understand the concept of God's hatred, we need to consider some of the, from some of the objects of his divine hatred. Idolatry, evildoers, the wicked, and those who love violence, robbery and iniquity, Israel's heathenism, all the vices listed in Proverbs chapter 6. Uh, in chapter 2 in Malachi, we learn that God hates divorce. And I'm convinced that the word hate in Malachi 1.3 means that God detested the land of Edom. Though this did not mean their eventual destruction, did not demand their eventual destruction, but Edom's actions did. Just like the actions of the Canaanites uh, and the actions of all flesh in the days of Noah. Um, as a wicked country, Edom always will experience the wrath and the judgment of God. Uh, let's move on. The theological problem was Israel's doubt of God's love. They failed to see that though God did punish them for their wickedness, God was faithful to restore them. And he set things up through them to bring the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. This theme of God's love sets the brackets for the entire first section and ultimately the whole message of Malachi. Just as it was the mercy of God that destroyed the wicked Canaanites, so it is the mercy of God that hates uh, Edom and loves Judah. It is true, though, that the word love, when we contrast it with hate, can mean prefer. I don't think that means that's what it means all the time or is of the meaning of the word here. The prophet is not appealing to the compromising peace priests in the next few verses, 6 through 14, to change their attitude. Rather, he is condemning them for a violation of a fundamental principle of law and society that the lesser always honors the greater. God is serving, in this case, as the administrative authority for Israel, so he is naturally the greater. Israel has been called the children of God, but God has not received the honor due a father, nor did he receive the honor due a master from his servant or slave. This second accusation is that the priests who were supposed to lead the people in correct and acceptable worship were guilty of despising his name. The fundamental principle of worship under the law of Moses was that God gets the best portion. 
But an ungodly attitude was prevalent among the people and the priests as well. Their offerings to God were polluted. In other words, they didn't offer the best that they had. The priests were specified because it was their job to inspect and prevent such vain offerings. But they allowed the lame, the sick, the stolen, the blemished to be offered. And God rejected them. And then God seems to taunt the people and the priests, offer this in support to your governor and see how he will be pleased. Of course, God is much more than a governor. He goes on to say that there was no one to put a stop to this irreverence. There was no character or moral strength that would honor God first. God is not pleased with them, nor does he accept them. Verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1 are pointed in their rejection of those who are guilty of offering blemished sacrifices. Now, I think we have here an example of worship being detrimental to the worshiper. And this underscores the necessity of having the pattern and the attitudes in our worship correct. Some have suggested that Malachi has a universalist eschatology from verse 11. They think that this acknowledges the monotheism of pagan faiths and claim further that idol worship was really worship of God. This was a strange concept to even attempt to be drawn from the scripture in, in my mind. Malachi 1 verse 11 reads, For from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I want to notice very quickly in passing some facts that puts this notion of Malachi's universalism on ice. First of all, in this verse, three times God says, My name will be great among the My name will be great. He says it will be great among the Gentiles. He says incense will be offered to in it. He says, it shall be great among the nations. Plus, we have too many contradicting passages in the entirety of the Old Testament to list where God specifies that his name only is to be worshipped. This would, of course, destroy the prophet's argument and it would confuse his readers just like it would us if we heard something like that today. We have to ask the question, if the pagan worship was acceptable, why would they need to be converted? And why would Judah's offerings with their blemished sacrifices be unacceptable if the pagan offering to a deity of a different name was already acceptable? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This section refers to a couple of interesting items. The first is the covenant with Levi. There's no formal description of an establishment of a covenant with Levi, the tribe. This is likely a way to refer to all the stipulations and blessings given to the sons of Levi to carry out their role in God's plan. Now, a covenant with Levi is mentioned in Jeremiah 33 and Nehemiah 13, but we don't have the stipulations that are, are listed there. It's here that God wraps up the idea that the priests, and by proxy the people, were seriously fallen short in their worship. The pattern follows as normal. God charges them with sin. He says, I gave you a covenant of life and peace, and you departed from the way. You caused many to stumble. You corrupted the covenant of Levi. God says, I was faithful. I've been faithful. And to the house of Levi, but you've rejected me. So God cursed them according to the curses in Deuteronomy 28. Now, there is a bit of a literary issue with the terms priest and Levites. 
Some have gone so far to claim that the Levites and the Aaronites and the Zedekites were competing factions that operated as priests in Israel. However, each writer that propagates such an idea does so based on the idea of biblical discord and follows what's called the P tradition. These traditions that uh, P tradition is a part of, I completely reject and I would encourage you to also. Uh, we should deny any tradition or any idea uh, that encourages or buys into biblical discord. I think that the term Levites here seems to be the formal name for the tribe to which priests officially belonged and that all approved priests would come from this tribe regardless of any human faction. Verses 10 through 16. In this section Malachi lists two of Judah's transgressions. They are namely marrying pagan wives and divorcing the first wife without cause. God through Malachi calls this treachery or betrayal. Verse 10 specifically is a reference to God as the father of Israel and Israel as a brotherhood of God followers. Therefore, because this common bond exists between them, they should not betray each other by the two transgressions listed in these verses. The people of Judah further exacerbated the treachery by continuing to bring sacrifice as though nothing was amiss. And God emphatically declares that they will be cut off and he will not accept their offerings. Now, I especially love the phrase in verse 11 that says, For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. I'm using the New King James Version, by the way. This phrase highlights God's great love for the marriage vow and the institution of marriage. The versions that I have at home render God's view of divorce in these words. Hateful disgusting, detestable, and an abomination. Simply put, God hates divorce. Amen. Malachi goes on and says, You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with good will from your hands. The picture is hard to see without the context. It's generally accepted that the weeping and crying here done at the Lord's altar is because God rejected their offering. The offerer, of course, was rejected along with their sacrifice. I want to be very clear here. God hates divorce. I can't say that emphatically enough. But he loves the divorcee. And he loves the children of divorced parents. Talking in our day. God is the only father that many of these children of broken homes will ever have. And he's the only hope for our society. Now, um... The first sin in the list of Judah's transgressions was in marrying these pagan women. This sin is as old as the law of Moses. Malachi refers to the daughter of a foreign god. This is a woman who adheres to a foreign deity, someone other than Jehovah. Such marriages were always condemned because of the danger of seduction away from the one true God. The principle of holiness or separation from the world is violated in these mixed marriages. When we arrive at verse 12 where it seems that Malachi is praying that God will cut off from fellowship all who do this abomination of marrying pagan wives, the New King James translates the Hebrew as awake and aware. This is a Hebrew idiom which seems to be uh, a broad spectrum, a very broad range 
to literally mean whoever it may be without regard to their person. Uh, other options in, in other translations have been son and grandson, master and pupil, layman and priest. God's teaching through Malachi that no one, regardless of his person or his offering, will be spared or will receive mercy outside of re repentance. Chapter 2, verse 13. Malachi says this is the second thing that you do. This likely demonstrates the concept that these men had married a Jewish woman, that's the wife by covenant, and then married a pagan wife. And in order to gain some sort of advantage, they divorced their Jewish wife, the wife by covenant, promoted the pagan wife to the role of first wife. It's obvious to us that the reason for God's rejection of their offering was because of their unresolved moral issue. But Judah again asked why. The explanation comes because you've divorced your wife by covenant. The concept of godly offspring is not messianic. Um, that's in 13 or 14. But it shows that God's plan for families then and now is to have godly children, to raise godly offspring. Broken marriage vows render that very difficult. If you add a pagan spouse, it makes it nearly impossible. The impact, it impacts not only the human partners and their bond, but it also impacts God's plan for the human race. It has been said that children pay the highest price in any divorce. Only when both partners remain true to the structure that God has designed for marriage can children be provided the environment of safety and security and upbringing with respect for God and His commands as He desires. Godly children are difficult to raise and takes a great deal more work in those type of circumstances. The accusation in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, is addressed to the people as a whole. Surely there were factions, and factions of factions, just as there are today. But the people's denial of God's accusations suggests a denial of this truth because their experiences seem to confirm the concept that the law of retribution was not in place any longer. It's Judah is saying that they understand that God is now pleased with those who do evil. That Judah's wickedness, it's evident that Judah's wickedness was so great and so prolific they could not see that their own sin was causing their problems. They believed that God's rules and God's ways was of no account and that God was having favor in the wicked. But God says that Judah has wearied him. And this is a strange concept when we really understand what it's talking about. God is the source of strength, so it must be interpreted that God's patience was coming to an end. The concept of God becoming weary, though, introduces a theological problem. We've already seen that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, that he hates divorce. And now we see here that he is weary. These seem to me to be descriptors of emotions. But there is a school of thought that says that God is impassable meaning that he is not affected emotionally by anything in creation. This does not seem to describe the living God of the scripture. We remember that Jesus claimed that both I and the Father are one. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. But we see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. 
and exhibiting anger at the simony of the money changers. He seemed to have displayed a kind of fear before facing the farce of a trial that he went through. Now it's true that chapter 2 verse 17 probably belongs in the same paragraph as the Lord's complaint against Judah and Judah's response. Verses, chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 is the Lord's rebuttal to their response and contains some of the grandest personal messianic prophecies in the Bible. There's three points emphasized in this prediction. Preparation for his coming, the promise of his coming, and the purpose of his coming. It says, behold, or take heed, I'm about to send my messenger. It refers to a divine action. It seems that the verbs here present a present uh, participle and indicate that something is set in motion which cannot be stopped. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, we have one of the great predictions of John the Baptist. Uh, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a highway for, uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In our text here and in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, we see that this is a reference to John the Baptist. We see that this, this is verified in the New Testament by the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 3, in Mark chapter 1, and in Luke chapter 3. The messenger in the first line refers clearly to John the Baptist. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight is God in the form of Jesus Christ coming to his temple. Keep in mind that this is God's response to the people's reproach, where is the God of justice? It's interesting to note that the idea of God coming suddenly to his temple has been explained as relative to the time of the messenger who prepared the way. In other words, the messenger, John, had to come and accomplish his work so that Jesus could come. They were just a few months apart in age, remember, so it seems to me that this is a very possible uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Some think that verse 6 belongs with the previous paragraph and arguments can be made either way. The immutable nature of God is brought into the forefront in this verse. There's questions relating to the foreknowledge and unchangeableness of God's nature. Scripture is very clear that God does know the future. And here we have an Old Testament passage that indicates that He does not change. Jesus takes on this aspect of God's nature we see in Hebrews 13 verse 8. Questions begin to abound about this eternal changes, changelessness, though. Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I've declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them and did them suddenly, and they came to pass. The best response that I can give to questions about God's sovereignty and our free will is that God does not think like we do. Isaiah 55 verse 8. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So God's thoughts and abilities take on His personality. He's transcendent. His thoughts and abilities also are transcendent. I think that He can see the future and know what's going to happen because 
He himself is transcendent. He's outside of time and space and does not determine our thoughts or our actions, but he knows them because he's already there. So we see that Judah is not destroyed because God does not change. They were robbing God. They were robbing God by the neglect of tithes and offerings. Nehemiah 13.10 tells us of the same issue. And this helps us understand the dating of the book of Malachi to Nehemiah's absence. There seems to be a progression, according to Josephus, in, in, in intertestamental literature to the tithe going from the storehouse to being just for the priests, and then by the time of Jesus, just for Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. The tithe was being neglected and later abused, was intended to support the Levites so that they could devote themselves to the word of God. Second Chronicles 31 verse 4. God demanded the compulsory contributions to be brought to the storehouse, the temple, and the curse would be lift, lifted. But the tithe commanded here is not a part of the new covenant obligation. The New Testament does not advocate giving that will result in blessing. There is blessing in the New Testament that encourages the results in giving. This is the principle of New Testament contributions. It, does not, it is not a compulsory contribution that results in blessing. Rather, we receive blessings and so we give out of a grateful heart. God has blessed us with spiritual blessings in high places, so we give generously and with thanksgiving. The giving enjoined in the New Testament is based on a different motivation than that of the Old Testament tithe. Nowhere in the New Testament are people, are, are people of the New Covenant commanded to bring tithes to the storehouse. It could be said that there is no storehouse in New Testament dispensation. The given requirement is no longer an external requirement of dues from every member. Rather, it's an expression of love from a regenerated and a redeemed heart. Malachi chapter 3 through chapter 4 verse 1 or chapter uh, 4 verse 14 or chapter 3 verse 14 depending on your translation. This section contains the longest part of Judah's speech or rebuttal back to God. It's a comparison between the faithless and the faithful. The faithless have God's judgment and displeasure and the faithful have God's blessing. Judah claims that it's useless to serve the Lord because the wicked are raised up and they tempt God and go free. Is this a just accusation? Does God bless the wicked and allow the wicked to go free? Part of the problem at least is in the people's halt in religion. They served God by keeping the rules the way that they wanted to keep them. Careless external rule ritual keeping. At the same time they performed acts of treachery such as divorcing their wife, not paying their hired hand, not given the required tithe. And in the previous section, there's mention of sorcery, adultery, and perjury. This type of service amounts to nothing more than hot checks drawn on an empty bank account. The Book of Remembrance seems to be a divinely kept record on behalf of the righteous. We're assured that there is a record kept, and we're assured that God's records are perfect. There's some discussion about what is written within the book. We see the people of God who feared God spoke to each other, uh, generally understood to encourage each other. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, 
says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. John the Baptist probably borrowed heavily from some of the literary figures that Malachi uses, employs here. Um, Taking verse 1 and 2 together, we see that some of the most eloquent and full prophecies uttered in the Old Testament. And every single scholar that I read makes this refer to judgment on the wicked and deliverance for the righteous. The day is coming, burning like an oven. And this burning and destruction will leave neither root nor branch. Comments and explanations have varied greatly. Some even teach in total annihilation in judgment. Linguistically, I think an argument could be made that total annihilation is in view, but not of people, regardless of their sin. I'm convinced that it's total annihilation spoken of here of the Old Covenant. Most scholars decry the chapter division and, and say that the thought pattern continues all the way through verse 3. This may be the most relevant section for us in our day. Malachi calls for repentance. There's an imperative here. Remember. Remember is a way, a step of repentance. This begins the final address of the Old Testament age. It's not a call to cognitive activity. It's a call to action. One is to remember so that one can go back and do the first works over. The law is what the Judeans were to remember. This command is coupled in verse 5 with a promise a figurative promise of Elijah's return. The New Testament clearly indicates that John the Baptist is spoken of here. Luke 7 verse 27, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before thy face, and he shall prepare thy way before thee. Verse 5, I will send Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This Elijah is not, contrary to that slide earlier, a contemporary preacher like Elijah, but rather a reference to John the Baptist. So what is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? I deny that this is final judgment. Every scholar that I read again makes that reference. Rather, I think the Old Testament points to this day as the destruction of Jerusalem. Joel 2 verse 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord come. Daniel 9 verse 26 and 27, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. The concept of repentance is seen again, this time with the result rebuilding the family unit that their sins had destroyed in chapter 2. The precept is revival due to repentance causes renewal. It seems that the whole, print, whole chap, of chapter 4 moves from the time of the Judeans, contemporary with Malachi, to the time of Christ and John the Baptist. It speaks of their work and the result of their work. Malachi is given clues for the succeeding generations. Watch for the messenger. Then watch for the son of righteousness. He will bring healing as he burns out the dross, the Old Testament. Preparation for this time is done by repentance. I want you to see the consistency here between the Old Testament and the New. Malachi preached repentance. 
John preaches repentance, Jesus preaches repentance, and the gospel preaches repentance. The final phrase of Malachi has caused some to be very confused, lest I come strike the earth with a curse. Our English versions render this clumsily. This does not imply that the Messiah would not come if Elijah's or John's preaching secured the desired repentance. Messiah was coming at the appointed time and in the appointed manner. The difference and the reason for the word lest is the way in which his coming will affect people. This was a warning, not a threat. A warning of covenant punishment always held and still holds a door of opportunity to find safety. So when the Roman armies marched on Jerusalem, the Christians following the counsel of God fled. They were spared the judgment upon Judea. Malachi faithfully warned the people of this impending judgment, called the people to repentance, and pointed them to Jesus. That ends my study.